Well, good morning. Welcome to River Oaks today. Great to have so many of you here with us. Welcome also to those of you joining us online this morning on our second Sunday of Advent. Uh, I love this time of year when we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, before we get into the message today, I want to mention that Advent will culminate on Christmas Eve, uh, Saturday evening, the 24th of this month, and we will have three services on Christmas Eve. One will be at 3 p.m., one at 4.30, and one at 7.30. Each of those services will be alike. We'll have traditional Christmas carols, candlelight, communion. The services are typically planned to be just short of an hour, a bit less than an hour. And I want to give you advance notice about these service times because I think Christmas Eve is perhaps the best time of year to invite a guest who does not typically go to church. Uh, some say that even more so than Easter Sunday. Now, Christmas Eve is a time when those who don't go to church are open to going to church. So if you have a friend who doesn't go to church somewhere else, consider inviting them uh, here on Christmas Eve. I want to let you know also that we will celebrate communion today, the Lord's Supper, as is our tradition on the first Sunday of the month. So if you didn't get one of these package cups and would like to participate at the end of the message, those are available on the tables in the back and our ushers will have some handy as well. We're continuing today in our short series that we've called Advent Encounters. We titled it that because we're looking at the lives of people like Zechariah, Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary herself, the shepherds and the Magi, all of whom had some encounter during the Advent season from God, typically an angelic encounter with the exception of the Magi who encountered a star that guided them to the place where the Christ child was. But today we're going to talk about Joseph the same passage that the Littleton family read for us just a moment ago. I'm going to read a few additional verses surrounding that passage. It's found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We read these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's important, I think, to know a couple things about the culture in which Joseph and Mary lived. First of all, Mary was likely very young. Commentators, biblical commentators, say she probably was a relatively young teenager, perhaps 14, 15 years old. Secondly, to be betrothed uh, implies something stronger than engagement does in our culture. Betrothal was, was somewhat of a contract, but it was short of marriage. Mary and Joseph were not yet living under the same roof. They were betrothed to be married when Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And we continue. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So this betrothal required something like a divorce to end this contract. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of Mary, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is a pretty familiar uh, passage this time of year. You've probably heard it read before if you've been attending church for some years. Um, it's a heartwarming account, certainly, but it is so much more than that. These few verses are filled, absolutely filled, with rich theological truths that are essential for understanding God's plan for humanity. And so I'd like to look at it a bit more closely this morning. Some of the important things that are revealed in this short section of Scripture are these. Number one, the importance of Old Testament Scripture in the New Testament. Notice again the words that Matthew gives us. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes a verse that comes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14. Now, Isaiah lived and wrote... 700 to 740 years before the birth of Christ. But what is particularly significant about the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is this. There are five times in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 when Matthew explains what is happening by referring to an Old Testament passage. In other words, everything God is doing in the Advent, He's doing in harmony with His Word. He's doing what He said He would do. For example, in Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi go to Herod and Herod asks where the Christ was to be born, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Later in chapter 2, when the Lord again speaks to Joseph through an angel, comes to him in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And Matthew goes on to say, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Later in Matthew chapter 2, Herod, furious, decrees that all the male children to and under in that region would be, would be slaughtered. Horrible, horrible thing. And we read when people are grieving, this was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. And the chapter ends with these words, Joseph took the family that went and lived in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he would be called a Nazarene. Five times in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew alone, Matthew explains what is happening by referring to the Old Testament. This, I think, is highly significant for us. It points to the importance of Scripture in understanding God's plan. If we want to know God, if we want to know what He has done and what He's doing and what He's going to do, we have to know the Scripture that He has inspired because God has chosen to work in harmony with His Word. It also shows us, I think, the unity of the Old and New Testaments, how what's prophesied in the Old Testament is now coming to pass in the New Testament. 
There's a saying that goes like this, that the new, the New Testament that is, is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. There's a beautiful harmony between Old and New Testaments. The Bible is a unified whole. God is working in harmony with His Word. So first off, in this short passage, we see the importance of Old Testament Scripture in what's unfolding in the New Testament. But secondly we see the great importance of the simple obedience of this man named Joseph. We read again in Matthew 1.20, as Joseph is considering these things, that is, his wife uh, being with child before they've come together, before they're actually married, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This was Joseph's divine encounter, and it happened more than once that an angel appeared to him and spoke to him, said, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, that which is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife. Now, we should not imagine this would have been an easy thing for Joseph to do in that culture. The shame that could have followed not only Mary but him, taking along a woman to be married to whom he was not yet married, who was pregnant, would not have been an easy thing to do. It's interesting, as we read the Advent accounts, we get the Gospel of Luke, and they're much longer in Luke. And Luke majors on Mary, he touches on, uh, at some length, Zachariah and Elizabeth, almost no mention of Joseph. But here in Matthew... Matthew's letting us know that Joseph, too, had a highly important role. His obedience was critical. Joseph, throughout Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and and we don't read much more about Joseph in the whole Bible. By the time Jesus is an adult, it appears that Joseph had died. But in these early pages of the New Testament, Joseph is playing a critical role by obeying what God says to do. In Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, we read, um, when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, God speaks, Joseph obeys. We shouldn't imagine it was an easy thing to take his wife and young child for this Jewish family to go and live in Egypt until Herod died. Joseph did what God said do in Matthew 2 and verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Later they go to Nazareth, fulfilling what the prophet said, he'd be called a Nazarene. But Joseph is the one who's having these angelic encounters. God speaks to Joseph, and Joseph simply obeys. We don't know a whole lot about this carpenter. But when God spoke, he did what God said to do. I wonder if Joseph could have possibly known the significance of his simple obedience to God's word, to God's command. 
Could he have possibly imagined that his actions would one day be recorded in Holy Scripture? Or could he have imagined that 2,000 years later, people would be all over the world studying what he had done? I'm sure he could not have imagined that. But it reminds us, I think, that simple obedience to God can have significant, long-lasting ripple effects of which we may never even be aware. When I see the example of Joseph, I'm reminded of how important it is to obey when God speaks to you. We may never know how important our obedience to God may be in His his big picture plan. God may call you to take some step of faith to begin seeking Him more diligently in His Word and prayer. Maybe God's calling you to do that right now. Calling you to be, be a seeker. Not someone just who just shows up at church from time to time, but really a diligent seeker of God in His Word and prayer. Maybe God's calling you, speaking you to, to give something up. Something you're doing, you know, God doesn't want you to be doing. Maybe you're dating somebody, God, you know, in your heart of hearts. That person doesn't lead you closer to God. That person leads you away from God. Maybe it's a group of friends and you know every time you're around them, they don't lead you closer to God. They lead you away from God. Maybe God's call to you is to turn away and turn to me and seek me and to obey me. There are times in life when we know God is speaking to us very, very clearly. Sometimes we resist that still small voice, but it's highly important that when God speaks, we obey. Obedience to the Lord, he says, is better than sacrifice. And Joseph, simple Joseph, not one of the great heroes of the Advent account, but one whose obedience obedience was highly significant. We are always wise to imitate him. God spoke, Joseph obeyed, may we be like him. A third thing in this Advent record, in these few short verses, that is a highly significant theological truth and has great practical implications, is the importance of the virgin birth. We read again these same verses. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. God says that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And again, this fulfills the Old Testament verse, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. A lot of people scoff at this idea. How can a virgin have a child? It's kind of like scoffing at the idea that Jonah could be swallowed by a big fish and live through it. I've never understood, though, how people who believe in the existence of God and believe that God really created everything, I've never understood why people who believe that could not also believe God can do anything He wants to do with His creation. I mean, if God created all things, He can do all things. As the Bible says, nothing shall be impossible with God. The big question is, though, why is the virgin birth so important? Why is it so significant? I would say even essential. Why was it necessary that Christ be born of a virgin? Because without it, Jesus 
would not have been who he was. And his being who he was was essential for our salvation. Jesus was both fully God and fully human. Craig Blomberg is a biblical commentator who, who has a very good commentary on the Gospel of Matthew and the New American Commentary series. He writes these words about Jesus. His father, in essence, was God through the work of the Holy Spirit. His mother was the fully human woman, Mary. As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the eternal penalty for our sins, for which finite humanity could not atone. As fully human, he could be our adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. This is what theologians call the, the two natures of Christ, that he was both fully God and fully human, not 50% one, 50% the other. Jesus was fully God as he walked upon this earth, but he was also very much fully a flesh and blood human being because his mother was a flesh and blood human being, Mary. As a human being, Jesus could take our place on the cross and as God, his sacrifice was of infinite and eternal value and could cover all of our sins. This, I think, is why the virgin birth is so important to believe. And it's clearly taught in Scripture. Another important thing that stands out in this short passage is the importance of the name of Jesus. As we read in verse 21, God, through the angel, says to Joseph, about Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yeshua, like the word Joshua, and it means the Lord is salvation. Jesus, Greek form of Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua, and it means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. So his name points to his work. And his central work was dying on the cross to redeem us from our sins. Jesus did many wonderful and great things. He healed many people. He raised the dead. He delivered people who were oppressed from all types of torment. He multiplied food. For the hungry, he cared for the poor. His teachings were the greatest teachings ever to have been given in the history of our world. Yet his mission, his central mission, was that which he stated himself in Luke 19.10 when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. This he would accomplish when he died on the cross when God become man, gave up his life there, being nailed to a cross, shedding his own blood, and having placed upon him the weight of the judgment for all of our sin. So that through our faith in him, we could bear his righteousness and be forgiven. And his name, Jesus, represents this. The Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is why the name of Jesus is so very, very holy. And I hope 
you treat his name as holy. I've never really understood, well, I guess I do understand because the Bible says that Satan is the, the little g God of this world. I started to say I've never understood why so many people, it, when they're cursing, using profanity, find it necessary to use the name of Jesus. Why not use the name of Satan or, or some bad person, you know, Hitler, something like that? Why, why is it in so much entertainment, script writers for movies and TV shows, when someone is exasperated or angry or cursing in some profane way, they feel it necessary to put the name that is above all names, the holy name of Jesus, the one whose name stands for what he did, the Lord is salvation. Now, you and I can't control what the ungodly world around us does, but I sure hope you honor the holy name of Jesus in your home and in your conversation and in your life. That name that He has given us by which we can approach God and call Him our Father who art in heaven. The significance of the name. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. So this heartwarming passage where we read of Joseph's Advent encounter with an angel in a dream, I think points us to some highly significant Christian doctrines. And by doctrine, I mean a teaching that is, is, is a foundational part of what we believe. For one, the authority and inspiration of Scripture. What's happening in the Advent accounts uh, is often referred to as a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. The Advent accounts show us the unity of the Bible, the importance of Old and New Testaments, how the Bible is a unified whole, fully inspired by God. They show us the great significance of the virgin birth so that Jesus would be fully God, fully man. The two natures of Christ and why this was necessary for our salvation. We see that Jesus' role would be the role of Savior. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And furthermore, Jesus is reconciler. As the verse from Isaiah spoke, also quoted to Joseph, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us. That tells us that Jesus in his saving work was reconciling us to God so that God could be with us. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Because of Jesus, we can be in fellowship with God without fear of rejection or condemnation through our faith in Christ. So my encouragement to you this Advent season is to get to know this Savior, God who became a man, to redeem you to Himself, to reconcile you to God, to save you, to bring you into His eternal fellowship, His eternal family, to get to know Him better. And I want to give you this challenge. If you are not reading your Bible daily, now if you are reading your Bible daily, don't change anything. 
you're doing great. Not a lot of people do that, but if you have that pattern, that good discipline of daily study of the Word of God, just keep it up. Whether you're in the book of Leviticus or Exodus or wherever you are, read the Word of God. That's the best place to grow. If you're not, if you're not, I want to give you a challenge to start today. And the challenge is this. In this Advent season, I would give you the challenge, the encouragement to begin today reading three chapters a day for 30 days through the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels, which present this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, the four Gospels contain 89 chapters. And if you'll read three chapters a day, in 30 days, by January the 3rd, I think, uh, you will have read all four Gospels. If you're not reading the Bible daily, I want to give you that encouragement. Three chapters a day, 30 days to get to know the Lord Jesus better. I think that will enrich your Advent season immensely. And now, for those of us who know Jesus, who have embraced His salvation, we should be obedient to something that He called us to do. He didn't tell us how often to do this, whether to do this once a month or once a quarter or once a week. But we call it the Lord's Supper, communion. And we're going to celebrate that now. And again, uh, for those of you who may not have gotten one of these cups, they're available at the table at the very front, some available in the back. And um, feel free to stand up and grab one if you'd like. There's a little wafer in the bottom and the juice on top. I'd like to read what the Apostle Paul first said, however, about uh, taking the Lord's Supper, partaking of this. He writes these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what we're doing when we take communion is all about focusing on our Lord Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you choose to take communion, you are making a visible proclamation of your faith in the Lord's death on the cross, and you're anticipating His second coming. And then Paul gives a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When he calls us to examine ourselves, I think he first means to examine where we are in relationship with God. We've never put ourselves, uh, um, come to God humbly before the cross, uh, acknowledging our sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the most important thing we should do, we must do, to repent of sins, to turn to Him. But it's also, I think, a great time for self-examination for those of us who know that we already are Christians. Time to ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to prepare us, to confess any sin we need to confess, to forgive anyone we need to forgive. 
So I'd like to take a moment now for prayer and then silence uh, so that we'd have the opportunity to examine ourselves and then we'll take communion together. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we pray the prayer that King David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way or wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Please, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to take communion rightly, we ask. In your great name.